Everyday consumers are being bombarded with the next big thing in health, wellness, and fitness. What's the future of keeping ourselves healthy and what's just a passing fad? Hi, I'm Joey Thurman, and if you don't know me, I'm a health and fitness expert and author. I've been fortunate enough to work with celebrities, athletes, C-suite executives, and everyone in between. I've been featured on the Today Show, Live with Kelly and Ryan, Good Morning America, TEDx, and lots of other publications. As part of my ever-increasing thirst for knowledge, which ironically happened after college, I decided to create the Fatter Future podcast. What sets this podcast apart is that I am the guinea pig for these episodes. I don't only want to bring in world-class experts on the show, I want to truly get a first hand experience what it's like to say go on ketamine and trip for my depression go on a three-day fast drinking nothing but coffee and water for age reversal eat nothing but plants and get the blood work done to back it up or even get my brain mapped to see how messed up my head is from getting knocked around playing hockey once i try these things i bring on the experts to talk about my experience and explain it to the audience in a digestible manner and ask the true question is it a fad or is it the future? Because after all, we don't want to be fatties. All right, it's Joey Thurman. Welcome to another episode of the Fatter Future Podcast. And this is a unique one. This is the first time I have a person on a video screen in front of me. I can see her, but I can't smell her. I can't touch her. She's not, a, she's not tangible right there in front of me. So it's very strange. But today I have Rebecca Costa, world-renowned sociobiologist and futurist. Now, you, you've got books that are bestsellers. Um, you're actually really unique in what we're going to get into this, but you're somebody that really believes in that we needed to panic. And I've, I've read your articles and it's really interesting. Uh, your, your first book, The Watchman's Rattle, uh, uh, was an international bestseller. Your follow-up book titled The Verge was introduced in 2017 to critical acclaim. You've been in everything, uh, you know, from New York Times to Washington Post all over. So you, you've kind of spanned the globe and, and you're quite well known and I've actually seen you on TV and I, I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to do this special episode of Fatter Future because we're not talking about fitness or diets or nutrition. I mean, we're gonna, all of that kind of goes into, you know, what's happening right now with COVID. Uh, but first of all, I just want to say thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. I know this is just, you know, it's a strange situation, particularly for you, who I know to be a very empathetic person and you know, you like to you like to just be with the person so that you can read them and you can, you know, explore deeper how they feel and, and what they're thinking. And it's very hard to do that on a screen. I, we were talking earlier about the fact that if you're a sociopath, you've got no problem, you know, making this adaptation. But if you tend to be a very empathetic kind of interviewer, uh, it does present some challenges. Yeah, I tell you, I've, I've turned down world-renowned people because they they wanted to call in or just do a Zoom call. This is months ago, and now I'm like, all right, well, yeah, I, I guess I'm going to have to adapt. So I'm not a sociopath. So that's the one <laughs> thing that I'm going to take from this. Uh, so my, my well, that's, wife, that's yeah. Good. My wife in the other room with my son right now. Yeah, my wife's got my, my, my toddler in the other room trying to keep him quiet. So if she heard, honey, I'm not a sociopath. Uh, so. <laughs> well, that's a very good thing. But it is a, it's, a, it's an unusual thing. I understand yeah. it myself. You know, I prefer to sit in front of someone and do interviews as well. But, yeah. you know, we're all adapting as best we can. Some of us doing it a little better than others. I had mentioned to you that I thought comedians were having the hardest time because yeah. 
you know, they get juiced by the audience's reaction. And so you see people like Bill Maher on TV in his backyard, and he's not the same Bill Maher that right. we've really come to know because he really is empathetic and he does get energized by his audience's reaction and their spontaneous comments and so on and so forth. Then you can just see, I mean, and so I, I had been uh, typing little notes to his producers going, at least run a, a fake laugh track in the background. Maybe that will, that will help him a little bit, but you know, you can really see a big difference between the Bill Maher in his backyard and the Bill Maher on a stage with a live audience. Yeah. Now maybe somebody's building a fake audience for him or they're clapping, clapping and laughing. I don't know, like some sort of robot. Maybe they'll figure that out for him and then he'll be on. Well, the they're going to have to do something, put a bunch of screens with his friends, all <laughs> on Skype, you know, sitting in chairs or something, laughing really loud, pump up the volume. They're, they're going to have to come up with something. I, I think it's very, it's very rough for him. And I, and I have to imagine he is his own worst critic right. as most comedians are. It yeah. tends that they're very self-critical and mm -hmm. self-analytical. And that's why they depend so much on the response of the audience. Yeah. And when you're a good interviewer, you're, you're kind of, you know, um, finely tuned to who you're interviewing. You're, you're all 1000% of your focus is going on their response. And that's sort of telling you where to probe a little deeper, right. you know, and, and where to back off because you're, you're making them feel uncomfortable. And so now the interview is going to go a different direction. Right. So, you know, you're, you're really kind of attenuated to that. And, and you lose all those subtle things, you know, when yeah. you start to, although facial recognition software is eventually going to help us as interviewers, if we have to continue doing interviews Ooh. like this, we'll have facial recognition software, which is only a few hundred dollars right now, that could actually be on your face and be giving me feedback. Hey, Joey doesn't like what you just said, back up and, and giving me literally feedback in picoseconds. Oh, Joey's and, pissed off. Yeah, he's, he's yeah but he's smiling, but he doesn't really mean it. <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't really want to be here. He, he's, he's thinking yeah, about what's yeah, going on. He really doesn't like you and, you know, all of this information that you don't mean to be giving me. Facial right. recognition software has gotten so uh, powerful and oh, so that's... precise and accurate. Okay, that's that, scary. Uh, eventually, we'll be using that in interviews. Yeah, that's really scary. And they're, they're probably put it on FaceTime and people are going to watch. We're talking about the future here. I mean, what happens, you know, eventually then I, I, I call my wife, I'm out of town or something. She's like, you okay? And I'm like, no, I'm fine. And then she's like, no, the facial recognition software is saying that you're, you're ticked off right now. What's going on? Right. Well, they're using it in job interviews right yeah. now because, you know, uh, they started doing a lot of job interviews over video way before the virus uh, lockdown. And they were using facial recognition software because people kind of bloviate about their experience sure. and they, they don't want to exactly say why they left the last job and so on and so forth. So it was giving the, inner, the people in HR an extra clue as to, well, that person was being deceptive or, wow. or they were avoiding that question. And so they would go back and ask the question again and again and again. And it was also a truth monitor for yeah. them. And, uh, and so a lot of, you know, uh, uh, HR groups were using um, uh, facial recognition software in interviews. Um, but, I, but I will tell you the one that, that's really going to get you that your audience will be interested in is MIT has a headset that actually uh, you, you think a word before you say it. it that's hard to imagine because when we're talking, a lot of words are coming out. 
but you think a word before you say it. And so MIT has a headset that you can put on your head and it will uh, make an audio sound of the word you're thinking. Which is, uh, uh, which when I saw this at MIT's media lab, I said, this is the end of all marriage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you didn't see on the screen what was in my head, but um, basically- see, Because it, it the, minute, right the minute, you know, a husband walks into a room and the wife goes, put the headset on. <laughs> you know, we're, not happening. We're, we're pretty much done. <laughs> yeah, not, absolutely not happening. <laughs> all right. That's a good way to start. All right, so you are a social biologist and futurist. What what specifically is that? Can you explain that? If I've got my two-year-old son in here, how would you explain that to him? Well, uh, I'm an evolutionary biologist. I look at man's progress, right, from the very beginnings of humankind all the way to modern times, and I look for patterns uh, and, and things that would indicate where are we headed? What kinds of things have occurred in the past that lead us to believe that there's a high probability that humanity itself will move in this direction or that direction? As you know, 99.99999% of all the species who have occupied our great planet have all gone extinct. So, so given those odds, it's right. not looking good for humankind to stick around forever and ever. Yeah. Actually, we're quite a miracle. If I can use that word, we're quite a miracle. Mm -hmm. There was a time where there, we probably, our numbers uh, were down to somewhere between 300 to 1,000 human beings spaced all over the planet. Um, and from that, look at where we came. I mean, right. we're now the top of the living pyramid um, and, you know, the destiny, really writing the destiny of our future um, using technology and science. So there's every hope that humanity can survive the bad odds of extinction. Um, but, you know, when things like the COVID-19 virus occur, it causes us to think, hey, you know, we're not immune to biology. Right. I, I always tell people that, you know, uh, science is the enemy of politics <laughs> because science doesn't have any politics. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have, it doesn't respect national borders. It doesn't care about age and it doesn't care about wealth or power. Uh, a virus just is a virus. It's a living organism and it's looking for a host. And it's not too picky about who that host is. And I think we're quickly learning that as people like the prime minister in, in the UK catches mm -hmm. the virus. And we think, well, gosh, every precaution in the world was used to make sure that he was safe as well right. as our own president and vice president. Right. I mean, right right now, there is a, they're worried about an outbreak in the White House. And, you know, uh, Vice President Pence is saying that he doesn't necessarily think that he's going to quarantine himself. But... We're tell, they were telling everybody else that if, if you're in contact with somebody that, you know, is infected to quarantine yourself. So it's really interesting, especially since you bring up the science. I mean, I think that politics is getting in the way of science. I, I think you put a Dr. Fauci or anybody else up there and then let the scientists talk. 
we might be a little bit better off. So what do you think they should be doing in the White House right now? If I mean, obviously, there's a couple of people right now that are infected, probably more if you're just looking at the odds. I don't know if you saw that graph of the, the restaurant where, you know, four or five people were infected in the, in the one table and the next table, next table. I mean, they're in closed quarters and we're doing those. They're doing those press conferences. They're not within six feet apart. They're all kind of standing lined up. So where, what do you think the, the administration, the White House should be doing right now to try to control that, if you can control that? Well, there comes a point where, you know, people are going to do what they're going to do. Yeah. You know, you open up the beaches and everyone goes to the beach. It's yeah. not that they don't have the information. It's not that they, you know, aren't informed. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it, it's that they've made their own decisions. And particularly in the West, we're used to individual liberty. We respect individual liberty. And, uh, and, and that's embedded in our culture. And so we don't do very well when we're forced to do something. Right. You know, we, we just, there's just something in us in the West where we rebel. So, you know, somebody says, hey, this is how fast you can drive, 60 miles an hour, and we're going, well, that's for other idiots, <laughs> not me, right? We right. used to call, yeah, we used to laugh about that and just go, you know, why do we always think when a, when a rule or a law comes down, it must be for other people that yeah. are not as good as me, not as good a driver, or not as smart as me, or whatever. And we, we had, tend to have almost an adolescent rebellion mm -hmm. built into the culture. So there's a question of, you know, you could say, well, what should the government be doing? And I'm, yeah. and I'm thinking to myself, well, the government can do whatever it wants to, and it can make whatever recommendations it wants. The more important thing is, what are the people going to do? Right. And in order to do that, we have to look at what their natural tendencies are. What does human nature tell you they're going to do? Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah, I mean, and human it, yeah. nature tells you that they're not going to necessarily listen to the... And, and listen, even governors are not listening. <laughs> the CDC comes out with recommendations because, right. I mean, we're not just talking about the people on Main Street, we're also talking about governors. Yeah. I mean, the CDC and the White House put out recommendations and they said, well, you can start to think about reopening, right? As if your numbers go down for two consecutive weeks. Yep. Well, some places are opening where the numbers haven't gone down for two consecutive days. And they said, well, we just can't wait. So, you know, it's, it's a nice question to say, what should the government do? Right. Government should keep giving information mm. to people and then expect that human nature will kick in and people are going to do what they're going to do. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, right now I, I'm on Chicago Avenue in downtown Chicago. So it, it's usually really busy. You know, when it's warm outside, it's cold quite often, but you'll see about 50, 60% of the people, you know, wearing a face mask, the other ones going by or people that are running. Some will cross the street, which is great. Some will run right past people and so then you don't have that six feet of distance. And then if they're running, you're actually expelling more air and possibly more saliva and it's aerosolizing the air and get through the whole thing. But it's interesting because some people are like, I'll be fine. I'll just do what I'm going to do. And at the same time, like we're just watching that social experiment outside our, of our condo and we're sitting there and saying, wait a minute. So the, the mom and dad have a mask on, but the five or six year old doesn't like that's really interesting. Like, why aren't you protecting your kid? Or maybe because originally said, we said that, oh, kids can't be affected. Now, was that the only news that they got? And they didn't, didn't hear that now children are potentially being affected. So it's really interesting to see that experiment and say that exactly. People say, I I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I still need to get my run in. I still need to do whatever. Like it's, I don't think they're seeing 
the future in this. And then to the article that you wrote, I think back in March, you said that, you know, you're one of the few scientists that says we need to panic. Did yeah, we, did panic we, is good. Yeah. Did we panic, panic enough? In, look, let me say this. If you're panicking over something that actually isn't a threat, that's called a neuroses. Mm -hmm. and, and we have like thousands of pages about people that panic or, or inappropriately react to a threat. Yeah. But, but understand the reason panic is built into your physiology. The reason you have fight or flight mm -hmm. when, when you face an immediate threat, like I throw a snake down in front of your feet, your body is flooded with chemicals. And those chemicals, the reason they flood you instantaneously is for your survival. Panic is a mechanism designed to help you survive and propagate your genetic material. That's what it is there for. So when you have a threat like this, mm -hmm. the right and appropriate reaction to something which we don't know a lot about is fast moving and has deadly consequences, the right reaction is panic. Right. right, and I have been very critical of the United States government and even the scientists that were advising the US government that I would have rather panicked and did panic in February. Mm -hmm. When I began to see the numbers out of China, I said, you know what, we need to lock the whole country down for the next two, three, four weeks. It sounds really extreme and you'll take a lot of heat for it. Right. But get it, give everybody money to shelter down and say, we're gonna close all businesses, stock exchange closes, everything closes except for food delivered to your house. Government's right. gonna pay for food to be delivered as much as you need. And we're gonna send you money and let's just do that for three or four weeks to stop it in its tracks. If we had done that in February, if we had hit the panic button in February, what is it? We're gonna be up to 100,000 in no time yeah. that have died in this country. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing because originally they said 100 to 200,000. And that was the one time where I'm, I'm not a huge Trump fan. And say what you will about the guy. I'm not going to sit there and bash him. But they said, originally said 100 to 200,000 people. And that was the one moment I thought, well, wow, he actually gets it. And I'm like, ah, it's going to be 60. It's going to go away. And now, yeah, we're approaching 100,000. And, and they just released new metrics that to say 137,000 people by early August in the States. Well, you know what die. they're calling this? They're calling this necropolitics, the politics of death. Mm. And, you know, we, we, we went through this, I'm old enough to remember, we went through a similar kind of horrific analysis when it came to the Ford Pinto. Do you remember the Ford Pinto? I was, born in, I was born in 83, so yeah, okay. uh, I'm sure a lot of people were conceived in the Pinto. Well, I just want to <laughs> remind, yeah, I want to remind people about the Ford Pinto. Okay. So it was discovered after many accidents and many fatalities that if you had rear-ended a Ford Pinto, the gas tank was right there in the back and that the car would blow up. It was basically a bomb on four wheels, okay? Uh -huh. now, now, after many of these accidents had occurred and many, many people had been lost, certainly not hundreds of thousands, but many people had been lost, somebody looked at the design of the car and said, this is a bomb on four wheels uh, did Ford know about this? And it turns out several memorandums surfaced 
where there was an analysis done by the Ford Motor Company. And the analysis was, what is the potential worst case scenario for being sued by the, by the small fraction of people that are going to be rear-ended hard enough that the car blows up versus completely redesigning the car so that the gas tank was safe? And hands down, it was better to be sued. Wow. So Ford went that route. Now, this has all been documented in films, and it's been documented. People can look up, uh, you know, the details of this. But this was a, this was a, a, a the, the business of death. There was an economic consequence, and it was cheaper to keep the car on the road. It was a bestseller for Ford, no question about it. The number of people that were going to be impacted at that high of a speed, very, very small. We're now taking that Ford Pinto example, and we're now putting it across hundreds of thousands of people and saying the number of people that will die is relatively small versus the economic consequences of not reopening. Yeah, but tell that to the potential 100,000 people in the States alone uh, that their loved ones passed away and they didn't get to go to that, have that funeral. And then maybe six months or a year from now, maybe they can have, you know, that, that big gathering and where you can hug people and say goodbye, you know, tell that to them. And that's the thing that really ticks me off about this is because I feel like it's like, eh, okay. Yeah. hundred thousand. Okay. We're, we're a very large country. That's not that many relatively speaking. And initially, they're like, oh, this is just the flu. Well, of course, it wasn't the flu. We, we know how to handle the flu and the flu vaccination. Don't itself, you think but, you it's know, interesting, like, the comparisons oh, we make? Well, God. how many hundred thousand die from the flu? And then there's how many people die from car accidents? Mm -hmm. And then how many people? The very idea that we're comparing numbers already is problematic. Yes. Well, yeah, why I mean, are you yeah. comparing numbers of you know, well, as though we're getting a discount, as right. though we're, we're not that bad off. Yeah, I, I, so I saw somebody post something like, yeah, how many of our millions of people die in a car crash? That doesn't mean we're shutting down the highways. Yeah, but, but you're getting what in a car. Like, that makes no sense this? whatsoever. Like, you're doing all this. But you do stuff. understand we're comparing the numbers. We're going, well, this number's lower and this number's right. higher. These are human beings. These are mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, friends, right? Yeah. Caretakers, uh, uh, doctors, yeah. right? That are dying. They're not getting sick. They're actually dying. Their yeah. life has ended. And, and instead, we're trying to make it okay by making these comparisons so that the number, mm -hmm. the number will, will lose its importance. Right. Yeah, we're we, somehow so, trying to get desensitized yeah. to the number. And that, that's a really scary thing. Yeah, we're, we're, we're trying to rationalize people dying and, and make it okay. Mm -hmm. We're just becoming desensitized. I mean, we, we can get a whole conversation about desensitization on, on, from TV to video games and all that. But, you know, that's the thing. We're, we're not comparing video games or television. We're comparing, like, actual people dying. So, I mean, it, if it's a matter of me, like, uh, one of my clients, um, kids got diagnosed with COVID, and we self-quarantined. She didn't necessarily have it, but day one once we found that out like okay that's it you know my 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 in-laws are in the 60s and 70s Good. and like there's so like that's what so we're, we do Good. what we can but i'd rather do that now and take care of that and self-quarantine and they're like oh you're not going outside going for a run I'm like no because this is a short amount of time in my entire lifespan 
So these three, four months, yeah, they suck. But if we do this and we do it right, if according to you, if we've done in February, it would have been much better. But then what if, what if we open up now and all that you've got 40 something states are opening up and they're not meeting the four, you know, standard requirements to open up. So we're opening not up not and it's going to spread out even more. And then two yeah. or three weeks from now, we're going to see that increase and then we're going to have to shut down again. So it's, Okay. It's, so, so it's let me, let me, let me bring some hope. Uh huh. I like hope. Yes. Like, all right. Because yes, the numbers are going up mm -hmm. in most places that are opening. They're not going down. Um, and the numbers are too high. Yep. I don't want to compare. Well, it's lower than this, right. so it must not be that bad. I, I, don't, I don't find that to be helpful. A vaccine is not coming. Uh, anyone who's listening, I'm a scientist by training, and so I'm telling you there's no vaccine in a year or two. Uh, we went through this when AIDS started proliferating. Again, I'm going to use an example before you were born. <laughs> but when, when, AIDS, right. when AIDS started proliferating in about 1984, it started spreading and everyone was very panicked over it because we were even thinking that a mosquito could bite somebody with AIDS and then fly over and bite you and you would get AIDS. We didn't really understand. It was just like COVID-19. We didn't understand where it was coming from. We just knew that it had made the jump from animal to human yeah. somehow and that it was contagious. Um, at that time, the Secretary of Health and Human Services of the United States said, we're working on a vaccine. We're putting all our resources into the vaccine and we will have a vaccine within 12 to 24 months. To give you some perspective on how hard vaccines are to develop, that was 36 years ago. Wow. We do not have an AIDS vaccine, in case anyone wants to know. Right. We're not even close to an AIDS vaccine. Uh, vaccines are very, very tough. The other thing is they only work about 20% of the time on a global basis. And there's a complication here, and that is that this particular COVID uh, uh, virus is mutating very quickly. We now have identified 11 lineages, probably more by now. My, my information might be outdated, but we've identified at least 11 lineages, some more that are stronger than the original COVID. So even if we get a vaccine, it's not gonna get all 11 lineages and it's gonna give us this comfort of, well, I got the COVID vaccine. Well, it's just like the flu vaccine. Right. It, it, it's just Russian roulette. We're taking our best guess what you might get, but we're not immunizing you from all the possible strains of flu, which is why the vaccines don't work that well. So there are a lot of problems with this idea that the vaccine's gonna come and we're gonna go back to normal and we're gonna be able to run and, and socialize and, and not ask people to take tests before they walk in our front door. That's not likely. What is likely is we're really good on cure. And this ties back into your profession. We're not very good at preventative measures. We're horrible like at that. Like yeah. eating healthy, boosting up our immune system, exercising, yeah. you know, we're, we're not good on that end. We're really good at fixing you after you got sick, right? We can't prevent, you know, we put almost no time, no energy, no science into preventing you from getting sick when we already know what the, that looks like. Right. Instead, we put billions and billions of dollars of, as soon as you get COVID, call your doctor, we'll give you a test, and then we'll give you something to mitigate the symptoms so you won't die from it. So what is likely is in the next 12 months or 24 months, we can keep anyone from dying from it. 
it'll be treated just like if you catch the flu or, yeah. or you get a cold or or you get measles, mumps, whatever, we'll have a way to keep you from dying from it. And that will allow us the pathway to get back to normal. Because if you yeah. can't die from it, if you're just going to feel crappy for a couple of days, but then you'll be okay, then what do you care that you got the vaccine or not? Right. So I don't think we're going to be able to prevent people from getting these kinds of diseases because our track record on vaccines is horrible. By the way, of all the diseases we've made vaccines for, we've only eliminated one disease. Out of all the years that we've had diseases, we've only eliminated one human disease, and that was smallpox. All the others, bubonic plague, tetanus, typhoid, it exists somewhere in the world waiting to spread again. <laughs> I, I'm just, you know, I, I need people to be realistic about vaccines. We have not eliminated any diseases off the face of the earth short of smallpox. That's the only one. You can look this up on the internet. What I tell you is the truth. Right. So, I thought if you were we providing can keep me hope. From dying, if we can mitigate the symptoms so that you're not breathing like there's, you know, a million pounds uh, on your chest, if we can keep, if we can get you back to health, mm -hmm. then it doesn't matter if you have the vaccine. In the same way that you don't have to die of AIDS anymore. Sure. Okay. Right. We have drugs that will keep you alive, and you have to take a lot of Vicky drugs and things like that, but you won't die of AIDS. Right. Well, I'm not quite sure how hopeful that was, but I, I appreciate it. <laughs> That's my best stab at it, Joey. That's what you have for hope? <laughs> I'm working hard to try to, you know, bring some hope. And I, and I don't want to mislead people about vaccines. And that currently seems to be what's coming out of the White House. Right. Don't worry, we're going to get this vaccine. And I said, well, you know, we've been down this road before. Right. right. Okay. Well, I appreciate the valiant effort on that one. So... <laughs> <laughs> nice job. Uh, we covered a lot. So I, I think this last question, uh, since you are a futurist and this is a fad or future podcast, where do you see our future? Are we always going to be worried about this? Yes, if we don't have a vaccine and, and, you, and, and you can actually catch this and we know you can live from it, you know, next year, five years from now, are we, are we going to be continually worried about this? Is the economy just going to go to crap? What do you see for us in the future? I see that this is going to be a disease like any other ailment, and you might catch it, but you won't die from it. Uh, your doctor will give you some drugs to take. You know, you might even just take them home and take them, and a couple days later, you'll feel better, and you'll hopefully have some immunity for a period of time from getting it again or getting one of the other lineages. So, yes, I do think things will go back to normal. But not immediately. Yeah. Not immediately. We're going to see uh, a, a bit of a spike that occurs because I believe we're reopening too soon. Yeah. But I don't believe that's because of the government. I believe that's because human nature. Okay. There's only so much you can ask people, request, you know, and tell them it's mandatory before they just do what they want to do. Yeah. So you talked about a, a little bit of immunity and the World Health Organization came out and said they don't know any, any evidence that we will have any immunity whatsoever. Do you have any thoughts on if we're going to be immune to any of these strains that you know, keep mutating? It's, it's hard. It's very difficult to say. There's just not enough scientific data right now to yeah. know if there is immunity. I would suspect because of 
other viruses we've studied, mm. that there's a high likelihood that if you get one of the strains of COVID-19, you, you probably are safe and, and safe from getting it again and safe from transferring it. But I cannot say that, uh, you know, with hundred uh, percent accuracy. I can only yeah. say it based on similar types of viruses. Sure. Okay, uh, Rebecca Costa, thank you so much for being a part of this brand new fat or future <laughs> podcast that yeah, I. I thought we did well. Yeah. We, did we did well great. for being uh, separated was, by thousands of miles. Good. You know, being I, too I, empathetic. Yeah. Okay. I, I'm. I'm not a sociopath. <laughs> Let's see. Okay. So, you know, that, that's going to be a highlight there. I'm not a sociopath. Um, you are crappy at providing hope. Um, <laughs> I am. Yeah, and, I am yeah. indeed. I have been accused of that. I, but I, I try to be accurate though. And comedians need a laugh track right now. Yes, they do. They need uh, a lot of help. Well, uh, thank you so much. I truly appreciate it. That's another episode of the Fat or Future podcast. And don't be a fatty, F-A-D-D-Y. Be a part of the future. Rebecca, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode. Make sure to follow on social at Fat or Future Podcast. You can follow me at Joey Thurman Fit. Don't be a fatty. Merchandise is available. Hoodies, hats, t-shirts, and beanies at fatorfuture.com. And make sure to check back next week. We've got a good episode for you.